Hello and welcome to Venturing and Climate. Venturing and Climate shines a light on the entrepreneurs and investors tackling climate change, hosted by me, Henry Hamilton. Today we have Tessa Clark joining us, co-founder and CEO at Olio. Olio is an app that connects neighbours with each other and local businesses so that surplus food and other household items can be shared. And why this is so important is because currently around one third of all food produced for human consumption is wasted, according to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. Welcome to Tessa. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Great to have you here. Tessa, can you tell me just from the outset what, what Olio does? I've, I've given it a shot there, but I'm sure you'll do much better than me. Yeah, so Olio exists to tackle the enormous problem of waste in our homes and local communities. And as you touched on, we are a mobile app that does that by connecting people with their local community. So you can give stuff away instead of throw it away and also lend and borrow things instead of buying brand new. So how it works is really simple. You just snap a photo of your spare item, which could be some food that you're not going to get around to eating this week, or it, it could be another household item that you're just decluttering and want to get rid of. So you snap a photo of your surplus item, add it to the Olio app. Neighbours living nearby get an alert. They can then browse the listings, request what they want, and pop round and pick it up. And one of the things that's most notable about Olio is just how quickly things are requested. So the average food listing added to the app is requested within 21 minutes and the average non-food item is requested within just two hours. So our number one challenge really is just encouraging everyone to take 10 seconds that it requires to give something away instead of throwing it away. That's very, very fast indeed. I wasn't aware it'd be so quick. What do you think is the driver behind it being so rapid? I think that... The inner student lives on in all of us and sort of free is a pretty compelling proposition for most people, especially when it's sort of hyper-local. It just requires you to pop out of your house across the road and go pick something up. People tell us that they love that opportunity to rescue something and give it a second life. They also really enjoy the opportunity to explore their neighbourhood and to meet other people in their local community. So whilst Olio's mission is absolutely focused on waste reduction so we can solve the climate crisis at scale, its beating heart is actually the community and the doorstep connection. And actually we ran some research at the end of last year, which showed that over 40% of our users said that they have, are they sort of less lonely since joining Olio? And also over 40% of our users say that they've made friends via Olio. So it's a pretty powerful combination, that sort of waste reduction piece, plus that connection with your local community. Mm, that's fascinating, particularly given the times we've lived through in the last couple of years. It's fantastic that it's brought that sense of community to people. I would love to hear how how Olio began. Just what was the genesis of the idea and setting up the business? Yeah, sure thing. So Olio came about as a result of a seemingly inconsequential moment in my life seven a bit years ago now. I was living and working in Switzerland and moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men told me I had to throw away all of our uneaten food. Now, I'm a farmer's daughter, so sort of food waste is akin to a crime in is our it, family. And I was from Yorkshire, yeah. Yeah, so my par parents are farmers up in, uh, yeah. up in North Yorkshire, and they sort of worked myself and my two oh, younger yeah. brothers extremely hard on the family farm. So 
that's why I have a pathological hatred for food waste. But And so that is why when I was asked to throw this food away, I was not prepared to do it. So much the irritation of the removal men, I stopped packing and instead bundled up my newborn baby and the toddler and I set out onto the streets, clutching this food, hoping to find someone to give it to. And to cut a long story short, I failed miserably. So I went back to my apartment, but I wasn't to be defeated when the removal men weren't looking I smuggled the non-perishable food into the bottom of my packing boxes and that was when I thought this is really crazy the lengths I'm going to to try and avoid throwing this food away and at that point in time I'd worked in the digital space for over a decade I knew there's an app for everything and I couldn't believe there wasn't a simple app where I could just advertise my surplus food to a neighbor and whoever wanted it could pop around and pick it up. You've been working in, this, in media for a decade there. What were you doing and what sort of, you know, it's quite a leap to go from, you know, working for companies and then setting up your own thing. What gave you the courage to, to really set up on your own? Yeah, so you're right. It's absolutely a massive transition going from working in a large corporate environment to setting out on your own and establishing something from scratch. There were a couple of things really that gave me the courage and the conviction to do this. So one was I had a wonderful co-founder so the minute I told my very good friend Sasha who I'd met at business school for about 10 years prior the minute I told her about Olio she absolutely loved it and she decided that she wanted to work with me to bring it to life so definitely that helped I, I doubt I would have had the courage just to do it by myself mm. uh, and then the second thing that really gave me the courage was after researching the problem of food waste and understanding the true magnitude of it it was just not possible for me to ignore that so very specifically we discovered that globally a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away which is worth over a trillion us dollars yeah. meanwhile alongside that there are 800 million people who go to bed hungry every night who could be fed on just one quarter of the food that we waste in the western world as if that weren't bad enough the environmental impacts of food waste are absolutely devastating if it were to be a country food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the usa and china yeah. Plus, as we look to the future, we've got another 2.2 billion people joining the planet. We need to increase global food production by 50%. We have no idea how we're going to achieve that. And so it seems even more crazy that we are throwing away a third of all the food we produce. So once Sasha and I had learned the reality of the problem and the scale of the problem of food waste, we were immediately committed to solving it. And I think it's that sort of fire in the belly that we got as a result of really understanding the scale and the urgency of the problem, which gave us the conviction to start our entrepreneurial journey. It's fascinating. I once wrote a research paper on why food waste is actually a problem, but also an opportunity. And those numbers are staggering the one trillion over a year of, of lost food in terms of value. What's the vision for Olio in terms of what we want to achieve in the next, let's say, decade or so? I think it's by 2030, you've got a mission statement. We, so we do, we've set ourselves an enormous and terrifying goal, which is that we want a billion people to be consuming via Olio by 2030. And the reason for that is really simple. We have to achieve that if humanity is to stand any chance whatsoever of living within a, a 1.5 degree warmed world, because reducing food waste has actually been identified as the number one most powerful lever humanity has to pull to solve the climate crisis, coming above electric cars, above solar power and above a plant-based mm. diet. That's according to Project Drawdown. So we know that we have to get what we're doing to scale yeah. as quickly as possible. And since we initially started out, Olio has expanded its remit beyond just connecting people to share food. We also now connect people to 
share other household items as well, either through giving them away or also lending and borrowing so that people don't have to buy things brand new. So really our vision, I guess, if you like, is that we'll really help reinvent how we consume and move away from this very linear, extractive, wasteful model of consumption, which is the current default and involves people sort of buying stuff brand new, using it for 5% of its useful life and tossing it into the landfill, and instead help us move to a much more circular model of consumption, which is hyper-local, it's sustainable, and it's about utilizing the resources that already exist in our local community before we buy anything brand new. I'm going off piece tail on the script, by the way, but obviously there is mm-hmm. a lot of work to do, both from um, a business level and regulatory level. And I know that there is the, one of the SDGs, I think 12.3, is the tackling food waste one. How do you think, maybe let's just take the UK, for example, that we as a country are tackling this issue? And what do we need, maybe from a regulatory perspective, to move forward? Because I know there's the, the, the saying of what can be measured can be managed. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's the Champions 12.3 group, which is trying to do this too. Yeah. But I'd be great to hear from your perspective just how we're doing. So there is a lot more that the UK needs to do to tackle the problem of food waste because collectively we are, as a country, throwing away over £19 billion sterling worth of perfectly good food every single year. And that that has to be solved, in particular in light of the cost of living crisis that's unfolding now and in addition, of course, to the ever-accelerating climate crisis too. So things that need to be done, first of all, I would love to see the government actually bake into their regulatory framework the sort of target and the goal of the UN SDG 12.3, which is to halve food waste by 2030. Because, as you say, I do believe that what gets sort of measured and monitored does get done. Secondly, and actually we've seen some great progress on this just 10 days ago, but I do believe that getting businesses to publicly share their food waste data would be absolutely transformative in terms of their um, aptitude to action and to to sort of try and solve Mm. the problem. And the government has just released, as I say, about 10 days ago, a public consultation where they are looking to mandate that businesses have to measure and report their food waste data publicly. So obviously we are hugely supportive of that type of legislation. I do also think that there needs to be some action around food labelling because the reality is an enormous amount of people get really confused by the date labelling that goes on food. So in the UK we have used by dates which is a health and safety date and we have best before dates which is really just saying that food is optimal from a taste, aesthetics and composition perspective prior to that date, but it can be safely and and happily eaten for weeks, months, even years after that date. But the problem is that many, many people get confused by best before dates. So I'd dearly love to see best before dates being removed and even used by dates being applied to fewer products. So I'm aware that in this country, a lot of the waste just comes at the consumer level. Do you you know, like, proportionally... Is the measurement of wastage at the producer level, agricultural level, how does that add up compared to the consumer wastage mm-hmm. level? 
Yeah, so a lot of people are surprised about where food waste takes place in the UK. So the source of this data is all RAP, which is a government-funded body who are really world-leading in how they measure and monitor food waste. So they have found that in the UK, half of all food waste takes place in the home. So that is the single largest place where food waste takes place. And that is because we have roughly mm. 28 million households throwing away roughly 20% of the weekly. Then retail stores are just 2% of all food waste. And that's what really, really shocks people. Then the next, sort of moving up again, sort of hospitality and food service is 8%. Manufacturing and distribution is 12%. And food waste sort of on or before the farm gate is 28%. So we're half the problem, and then the next biggest place is on the farm gate, which is the 28%. Mm. And actually, at a store level or, or, or restaurant or hospitality place, that really is where a very, very small amount of food waste takes place. And the reason for that being that ultimately food waste is expensive for businesses. They have bought that, and then they have to pay for that waste to be taken away. And so they work extremely hard to try not to waste food mm. at a retail level i'm quite surprised that it, well i'm actually amazed that it's 50 percent of that i thought it'd be like 50 50 maybe on terms of agricultural versus consumer but what's been done i mean this is a bit off piece but what's been done at the uh, agricultural level to tackle that amount of 28 percent well i mean again not enough but a large part of the reason as to why this is happening is due to the very stringent standards that the large purchases of food apply to often kind of the cosmetic appearance of that food and so for yeah. a farmer if you know let's say kind of a third of the crop is not the right shape or size or color or whatever it is it often will make sense for them just not even to harvest that food because it's just no longer economically mm. viable for them so a big problem with the sort of farm gate food waste is the purchasing practices of the large food providers but ultimately that very much sort of comes back to us as end users right Seems when enough. we see stuff that is that is loose we all sort of automatically pick through to find the best looking stuff and we tend to leave the rest behind as waste so i think we've all got to recognize that food is incredibly valuable incredibly precious and even if it is short or wonky or whatever it might be, that definitely does not mean to say that there's any compromise on, on quality or taste going on there. That's a very good point. Switching gears now, Tessa, I'd love to just know a bit more about your experience of running Olio and, and all that sort of stuff. So maybe I'll kick off the questions with, you mentioned already Sasha, your co-founder. Many people love to know how, how important that co-founder relationship is. How do you and Sasha work to, to maintain that really strong relationship as co-founders? So Sasha and I were first and foremost friends and for us that has been a really powerful bedrock to the relationship because the friendship is so precious that we don't want to jeopardize or sacrifice that and so what that looks like in practice is that we're very good at not letting things stew or fester and if either of us are kind of even 5% unhappy or feeling kind of at odds with the other or what they're doing then we raise that with one another immediately we just do little and often it's almost like i imagine kind of a pressure cooker and we just kind of let off that steam sort of the whole time 
And so as a result of that, we've had a very, very productive relationship. The other very important thing that we did was on the day that we founded the company, we divided up all the functions between the two of us. Now, it might seem quite absurd deciding who's going to do HR and who's going to do legal, who's going to do finance sort of on day one when there's just the two of you, but actually it was an incredibly valuable exercise because it meant that there was absolute clarity about who was responsible for what. We also decided who was going to be the CEO and recognized that if we ever found ourselves in a position where we couldn't agree with one another, we agreed that the CEO role has to take the ultimate decision. So yeah, I think we've got an incredible relationship and I genuinely think it's one of the greatest strengths of the company. How have you found going from Olio as a startup back in the day to moving much towards this sort of scale-up phase and very much in it now, having you know, raised your Series B round? Are there any key lessons that you would look back on and think, I wish I'd done that or, or had known that about that transition? Well, we're still very much in the middle of that transition. So, I mean, I, I sort of think of it via analogy. So when we were sort of pre-Series B, we were very much a small, scrappy startup made up of sort of mission-obsessed generalists. Now that we have raised a decent amount of financing and we're now very clearly a scale-up, we have recruited lots of new people who are all equally mission-obsessed, but we're now moving the organization towards a much more specialized approach and building out lots of new functions. So it is a metamorphosis that the organization is going through right now. It almost feels like a refounding. So I had certainly underestimated mm. just the extent of that transition from Series A to Series B. Via analogy, the way I think about it is it's a little bit like your child graduating from primary school and going to secondary school. So part of you is really sad and nostalgic for the fact that, you know, your child yeah. is not going to make you cute hand-drawn pictures anymore telling you how much they love you and part of you <laughs> grieves for that period. But yeah. equally, you would never want to press pause on that because you're so excited to see what your child is going to become as they develop and flourish through their, their teenage years. So, yeah, it very, very much feels like that transition. And you mentioned there that, you know, getting a lot of new people into the business. For a mission-driven company like yourself who's tackling a massive problem in, in the world, how have you found attracting talent? We have broadly found it much easier than I had originally expected. I think that the great resignation is real. People are recognizing that there is a climate emergency. There are so many social injustices in the world that need writing. And a lot of people are recognizing that they no longer want to be part of the problem. They want to be part of the solution. And so we have been overwhelmed by the caliber of talent that has wanted to join the Olio team. So we feel like we're in an incredibly privileged position, actually, to be honest. And it's been a really wonderful experience bringing on that whole sort of cohort of new Olioers and welcoming them to our company. Glad to hear. I thought that might be the case. You would not have struggled to find talent looking to, to leave, you know, maybe non-purpose-driven roles to, to join a company like yeah. Olio. Hardly surprising. I would love to talk about fundraising. I've been listening to some of your other podcasts and what you've written in your, your blogs and things. Can you outline your cockroach plan to our listeners, which I found fascinating? 
Yes, so I recently wrote a blog post about the concept of having a cockroach plan and I wrote it very much in response to the sort of dramatic downturn that is happening as we speak in the overall economy and the public markets and now it's increasingly flowing back through the private markets. So the cockroach plan is essentially the very, very, very worst case scenario plan. So the first time Sasha and I wrote a cockroach plan was just before we went out to raise our very first round of financing. And the cockroach plan essentially was very, very simple. It involved, you know, if we fail to raise financing, what will we do so that Olio stays alive? Because cockroaches are notorious for their ability to survive pretty much everything, including nuclear war, I believe. Absolutely. So our cockroach plan was that Sasha would continue to work on the business. I would go out and get a job and my salary would finance both of our families. And it was an enormously helpful process to go through because it actually, whilst the cockroach plan wasn't exactly something that we really wanted to do, we recognized that Olio could stay alive. And for us, that was the most important thing. That then gave us a tremendous amount of confidence going into the fundraising process, knowing that we had a fallback option. And therefore, every major round of fundraising that we've gone into, or in this instance, a significant turn in the market, we've gone through that process of figuring out what our cockroach plan looks like so that we can ensure at all costs that Olio will continue to to stay alive. You raised your Series B rounds at 2021. What year are we in now? 2022. Yes, in uh, we announced it in September 2021. What? Well, yeah. Okay, so probably quite good timing. Every, every single day, I am thankful <laughs> that we raised financing last year, and, and and there's a lesson in that, right? Which is raise capital when you can, because you never know when the mm. markets are going to change, and when yeah. they change, they can change incredibly quickly, in a matter of weeks. What's your advice to other, you know? climate tech startups who are raising now who you know might not have the 12 months runway or 18 months runway that they want what would your be your advice be just generally on how to approach this well so if you're raising now uh, and you have no other option then you've just got to really work hard on putting your best foot forward but i most certainly would be going through sort of the cockroach plan process to make sure that you have that super clear i do think that The climate tech space is slightly different than the broader startup ecosystem in that there are some significant tailwinds kind of coming into that space in terms of just the sheer volume of capital and new funds that were raised last year. And so those investors are still sat on those funds and they do need to deploy those funds. Now, I've spoken to a number of investors and they are definitely cautious sort of right now by right now Mm. i mean kind of you know this week because we're right in the midst of the turmoil and the unfolding of the markets and so no one really wants to press the trigger on anything right now because they want to see how things settle out so you should definitely be prepared for the fact that under a normal scenario fundraising we've always allowed six months to fundraise and arguably that will take even longer it'll take probably kind of nine months uh, in the current circumstances so you need to be prepared for that and then you've just got to you've just got to have an awful lot of conversations the the conversion ratio is is just low so you've got to be enormously resilient and how should the startups 
this like present the, the pathway to prof profitability at the moment? Do you think they need to be much more articulate around when they, they believe they'll be hitting profitability? In a word, yes. So last year and sort of, you know, the year before, there was way less concern about profitability. And I was talking to an investor last week and she was saying that in the climate tech space, who has a lot of capital, and she was saying that previously seeing profitability be 18 or even 24 months away was perfectly fine. Whereas now in the new climate, she's wanting to understand how could this business get to profitability within six months, for example. And so I think what you have to be able to show is how you could get to profitability. It doesn't mean to say that you will get to profitability, but the investors want to understand that that path is possible. If they then agree with you that actually no, profitability is not the right goal for this next stage of your journey, then that's fine. But they certainly want to see you thinking about how that could happen. And the fact of the matter is that the sort of capital-fueled growth days are certainly behind us for the time being and investors are really wanting to look at and understand what is a much more efficiency based growth type model looks like so it definitely is not a growth at all costs market anymore yeah i totally agree with that i think it's definitely prudent to, to make sure that it's economically viable before too long we, we you yeah. asked uh, when you were doing your series b how did you approach you know obviously it's 2021 slightly different but how did you approach profitability, particularly given you want to scale and scale and scale, reach a billion people by 2030? How does that balance with that key profitability point? Well, I mean, for, for us, whenever we raise, we always model out two full calendar years. And each time we've raised, we have demonstrated that we can get close to profitability by the end of that period of time. And... But what then happened has happened in practice to date has been that we've gone out and raised again before that two-year window yeah. has, has been up and that has sort of reset the clock each time. And we have yeah. always made sure that we have attracted mission-obsessed investors who are bought into that long-term goal of a billion people consuming by radio by 2030. And they know that profitability within the next sort of year or so isn't really the end the end goal like we've got to keep growing and unlock that enormous size of the prize but you know if we were to go out and raise again now i think we'd be we would be taking a different approach and having to have different conversations by by necessity due to the changes that are taking place in the market i'm asking lots of funding related questions partly because investor in the space but also just because of the market we're in when you were approaching investors at that stage do they have many real requirements like you know, recurring revenue or retention numbers. Do they do they have lots of requirements at that stage? It varies from investor to investor. So some investors do have minimum revenue requirements. I we will only invest if you've got more than one million or five million or ten million ARR. That's a really important benchmark mm -hmm. to establish in your first conversation with that investor to know if there is a match there or not. And then around some of those other metrics, again, that's another just important part of those exploratory conversations for you to understand what are the core KPIs and metrics that that investor uses to make their investment decisions. And the important thing to note is that this will vary from fund to fund. So they do approach their investment decisions yeah. in very different ways. We have 
always worked with our current investors. So the minute we close round round of financing, we then work with our current investors to identify what are considered the benchmark milestones for an organization of our type to successfully close our next round of financing. And so we know that by the time we next raise, we need this many million signed up users, this many million listings come onto the app each month, this sort of retention rate at three months and six months, this sort of revenue run rate. So you should definitely work with your current investors to get those benchmarks. The other question I had was around, you know, lots of founders I've spoken to have asked, you know, how, how to approach valuing their own business as a startup. Do you have a framework to use when, when you were going through that process and talking to investors? So the reality is that in the very early stages, valuation drops out of the equation. So, so you know, let's say you're pre-seed or seed or series A, generally what you will do is you'll say, how long do I want runway for? And I would strongly recommend that you raise runway for, personally, we've always raised for 24 months. And the reason for that being it takes at least six months to fundraise. And it takes at least six months post a fundraise to recruit all your new people and start to get them bedded in. So if you raise for 24 months, then that gives you sort of one year in the middle where you can be really cooking on gas and executing. If you raise for 18 months, and actually when you've got six months in the middle, which is not very long at all. So you need to decide how long you want runway for. You then need to decide the amount of finance you need to raise to deliver the KPIs that are required to successfully raise again in that time frame. So when you know how how long you want, how much you're raising, and then generally, you know, rule of thumb, early fundraising rounds, you are diluting 20, 25% each round, and therefore the valuation sort of drops out of that. The other thing I think to bear in mind is that Certainly in my experience, it's not for the startup founder to value their business. What happens is the market will value your business and you will receive one or hopefully more term sheets. And those investors will tell you how they are prepared to value the business. And that then is the starting point for your negotiation with them. And the other final point I guess I'd make on, on sort of valuation is that... I, I do think or I hear that a lot of founders get very sort of caught up on the valuation, but you need to think of the opportunity cost of not successfully closing your round, which for most businesses means almost yeah. certainly the end of the road. And also, if you unlock the full potential of your business that you really want, then the valuation in the early days is, is almost a moot point. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Thank you. That's it. Obviously, I've done a few episodes now and something that's really come strongly throughout from talking to founders such as yourself is just how, you know, challenging it can be at times, sort of, you know, mentally or just generally for, for founders, particularly maybe in this environment. I think in the, in the media, you know, entrepreneurs can be sort of slightly glorified and people just kind of get obsessed with being an entrepreneur. What's a day in the life look like for you uh, as a founder? Well... I mean, I would say I, I completely agree that founders can some, you know, the founder life can sometimes be glorified in the media. But I will also say from personal experience, I think it is a wonderful life in that for us, sort of the opportunity to 
do work with impact every single day has been transformative. So for me, yeah. sort of the amount of enjoyment and fulfillment I get through working up, get, waking up and working on Olio is a thousand X more than I ever had working in a, a corporate career. And also being master of your own destiny is really empowering as yeah. well. Having said that, the glamorous exterior definitely <laughs> hides a very, very unglamorous interior, which is extremely stressful and extremely difficult. So both Sasha and I have really found a rhythm and a routine for us that kind of works. We've realized that it is a marathon, not a sprint, or perhaps it's a series of marathons. So we both have our own sort of modus operandus on a, on a, on a day-by-day basis. So for me, you know, it involves getting up in the morning. First thing I do is check my emails in bed just to see kind of what's going on. And then I need to do family stuff, which involves getting breakfast for the kids and walking them to school. And then perhaps sort of the most important part of my day is the bit that comes next, which is when I go out for a walk or a run or a cycle or I do some weights in the garden. And that is my time to mm. work on my mental health, my physical health, but also I do my highest quality thinking time for the company during that period of time. And so I don't yeah. sort of start work as such. I sit down at my desk until 10 or sometimes 10.30 in the morning and then kind of work through till 6, have dinner with the kids, and then we'll work again a little bit later on as required. Great to hear that you still got that passion and drive for, you know, working in the impact space. I love to hear that. It's- it's good to hear what it's actually like because I think, yeah, certainly when I was uh, a bit younger, I was just obsessed with the idea of being an entrepreneur and maybe just talking to people. It's good to just to understand what it really looks like starting your own your own thing. What would be your advice to someone who's you know sitting there, maybe listening to this, saying, "Oh God, I've got a really good idea. I'd love to give it a go." What's your advice to that person? How, how, how what's the next step? Well, I would say abandon your idea. And I know that might sound a little controversial, but I do think that too many startup founders obsess about their idea and they, in doing so, they lose sight of the problem that needs to be solved. So you need to really, really be laser focused on the problem and getting absolute clarity. Is this a real problem? Do enough people care about this problem? Are they going to be prepared to pay me in some way, shape or form to solve this problem? And if the answers to all of that is yes, then I would say absolutely crack on and, and sort of start that journey. I, I think for many people, in particular diverse founders, there might be a real issue with imposter syndrome. I certainly had that. I had no clue. I, I was intimidated by the idea of becoming an entrepreneur. And to them, I would say, and it can feel like a sort of a really big binary thing kind of going from zero to one but the reality is that you become an entrepreneur just by putting one step in front of the other day after day after day and the first step is a tiny little step and day two step is a tiny little step and day three step and day 300 step they're all just a whole series of tiny little steps that collectively when you stop and look back they add up to an awful lot but they're way less intimidating actually sort of if you just break it down into small baby steps and as i've already touched on it is incredibly fulfilling working on a problem that you are incredibly passionate about and getting to manage your own day-to-day working and living experience. At the start of Olio, I believe you and Sasha set up a WhatsApp group. So your sort of MVP was like, you know, on WhatsApp, which is a super quick go-to-market and just getting there and testing that, 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 that idea you had, that's the problem you're solving. I think that was 
extremely like a prudent way to, do, to go about it. Yeah, 100%. A lot of founders have an idea and they want to race off and build an app. I definitely say kind of stop, don't do that, <laughs> research the problem thoroughly and then figure out if there's a really kind of low cost or no cost way that you can test the core hypotheses that you have before building an app because 99% of apps don't end up working out, right? Um, so you don't want to, yeah. you know, it can be a very, very expensive learning process. Yeah, absolutely. Test last few questions, if you will. First one is, if you could send one tweet this year, what would it be? I don't know if this is 140 characters or not, or 240, how many we're allowed nowadays. But, a few more. Yeah, something sort of along the lines of, it was billions of small actions that caused the climate crisis in the first place. So by the same logic, billions of small actions can help get us out of it. You know, you do have the power to make change happen. Because I feel that a lot of people are now increasingly terrified in the face of the climate crisis and they feel unempowered and scared and they don't know what to do and they feel frustrated yeah. that governments and businesses aren't doing enough and actually i believe we have so much power as individual consumers to start moving our money changing our behavior and we will demand change from business and governments through doing so thank you biggest mistake founders make leading on from what we we're talking about just a moment ago so many times early stage founders will start their conversation with me talking about this brilliant sort of thing that they are building using lots of jargon language and I always have to ask them to stop, yeah. rewind, please start with the problem that you are solving and then explain what your solution is in complete layman's terms or, or in sort of words that a 12-year-old would understand. And you must do that every single time if you're talking to a prospective investor or a prospective partner or a journalist. Always start off with the problem you're solving and why and then a really simple explanation as to how you are solving it. Biggest mistake VCs make? I would say, yeah, so... I'm focused on kind of early stage because that's where my experience with VCs is. Too often I see VCs trying to find the answer of whether to invest or not in an early stage startup by pouring through their data. And I really think they need to sort of lift their heads from the spreadsheets and instead eyeball the founder. And they need to be really digging deep to understand mm. what are the motivations, what are the ambitions, what are the aspirations, what are the capabilities of that founder that is sat in front of them is the founder market fit do they have the vision the smarts the resilience and the appetite to learn that is required to be successful and yeah i think that's really really important i think you know in the early stage you're backing the founder you are absolutely not backing the business and, and the business data really good advice love that the last one is can you tell us about a, another climate tech startup or scale up that you want to, you know, highlight and shout about? Well, I've got a couple. So one is Globechain, which is a marketplace that connects large corporates who are perhaps doing a refit of some stores or some offices that have lots of surplus fixtures and fittings that, you know, to date have just been going straight to landfill. And instead, they connect them to their global network of charities so those fixtures and fittings can be reused so big shout out for globe chain another one i love is safety net which is using a really innovative lighting technology in the fishing industry 
to dramatically reduce fishing bycatch because certain fish are attracted or repelled by different colors of light and so by shining mm. these different colored lights in your net you can make sure you catch only the right fish and, and not catch the wrong fish and then the third one is a business called aero powder who are taking all the gazillions of tons of chicken feathers that are generated as a byproduct of the chicken industry every single year and turning them into really innovative packaging and insulation products i've seen them that's a really cool cool business three three that's a, a new record on, <laughs> on the podcast thank you for that i'm gonna look those up and yeah. yeah and see how they're getting on what what's next what what should we be expecting from olio coming up well right now as i say we're really focused on making this transition from series a to series b one of the things that will be coming up later on this year is a rebranding so at the moment, Olio is positioned, certainly in the UK, Ooh. in many people's minds, as a food waste app. And we've now expanded to be much broader than that. And we've got to make that transition from being seen as a food waste app to something much more positioned around sort of the local sharing app and being all about local sustainable living. So you can expect to see a new sort of brand positioning, messaging and look and feel from us later on this year. Sounds really cool. I look forward to it. Well, Tessa, thanks so much for joining the podcast, sharing all of your wonderful insights, advice and stories. I think I found it really, really useful. I'm hoping the entrepreneurs, investors and anyone looking to get into the space will be inspired by your words too. My pleasure.